Hello, and welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. And here we are. Welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. We are here with Nassim Nobari of Seed the Commons. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Very excited to have you on here. So we did an interview with you, a written interview, I believe it was last year, we featured um, an interview that sort of uh, gave some background to Seed the Commons. Um, I recently began learning about vegan agriculture probably like a year ago and pretty quickly Seed the Commons comes up. Anybody interested I think has been following your work for quite some time. So it's really exciting to talk with you and to um, learn more about your organization, the history, and glean knowledge from you. I think, you know, I've had a few conversations with you, and it's always fascinating hearing your perspective and learning from you. So thank you for being here. Let's get started. Maybe we start off straight away with uh, a bit about Seed the Commons, just the, the mission and establishment. Yeah, so, um, so I'm the co-founder of Seed the Commons. Um, the other co-founder or other founder is Chema Hernandez Gill. Um, and so we started Seed the Commons actually um, more than 10 years now. We've been more active and known in San Francisco uh, since maybe about 2013-14. But we we had um, actually founded Seed the Commons earlier. It used to be called Mila Cayot. That was the old name and still the official name of the organization. And um, we started the organization because both Chema and I had been in various ways involved in, um, you know, I guess now would be called social justice activism, like anti-war activism in the early 2000s, um, anti-globalization protests. Um, I had, um, as a teenager, I would volunteer with Amnesty International. Chama had done a lot of media activism in the whole anti-globalization movement of the early 2000s. And so, so that's sort of where we were coming from, just, I guess, an, an interest in um, you know, making the world a bit better place, if you will. And for me, what started to become sort of the most important point was we need to work on food systems. We need to support groups that are working specifically on land and other resources like that, you know, defending and reclaiming land and indigenous movements, um, you know, groups like Via Campesina. So, you know, the, the interest in that world of activism wasn't just, you know, because we happen to be interested in food or we happen to be interested in agriculture. It was really because um, thinking from uh, anti-war, anti-imperial or, you know, climate change or environmental perspective, it started to seem that you need to go to the roots of these issues. You know, you could spend your whole life running after different campaigns to support and different issues to support. Um, there's always going to be something, but ultimately we need a system change. And that's going to start with the land and food and how food is grown and who owns the land and so on. So I, um, you know, personally, I started, you know, wanting to do more around that. I started volunteering with Via Campesina, which is an international peasant movement. Um, Chamo was also very interested in that. The thing was that we were both 
already vegan at the time um, and had really a strong sense of animal liberation as well. And so Seed the Commons was founded both because we wanted to be able to bring this perspective of reclaiming food systems from corporate control, which was really what we saw as um, just such a key element of fighting all of these different problems. We wanted to bring that to urban spaces. You know, what can we do as people who live in the city? We're not farmers. We're not interested in going and becoming farmers. How can we build awareness around these issues amongst activists like ourselves? But also, how can we do it as animal liberationists? There needed to be a space for that, you know, so that when we're saying, let's reclaim food systems from corporate control and instead have, you know, these small-scale sustainable food systems, well, we shouldn't be killing chickens and cows and so on to get that to happen. And so Seed the Commons um, was founded with this perspective of we're going to build awareness around the need to change our food systems, reclaim them from corporate control, because the corporate takeover of food systems currently is one of the means by which um, colonization is happening basically and the environment is being destroyed and people are being ousted from their lands to go work in a bunch of other exploitative industries and so on. But also it's going to be a place where we can um, think of all of these things and think of the new models we want as vegans and not exploit animals. So yeah, so we've, um, we were founded um, more than 10 years ago, but we've been more active in San Francisco over the past about six years. Um, and we've just, we've done a lot of different campaigns, a lot of different work. And one of the things that we've been really active in has been building a veganic movement and um, bringing visibility to veganic farmers and putting forth um, a vegan model of what a lot of people are already talking about, but doing it in a vegan way, which is small scale, sustainable, ecological agriculture as the basis of our food systems. Right, I remember in a prior talk we had, <clears throat> you mentioned that um, part of, for example, was it the People's Harvest Forum was to, was to give space to vegan farmers. So see the comments is not, but behaving necessarily as the experts, but you're you're bringing, you're giving the space um, to the people working within agriculture to share their knowledge and important changes that need to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, with, so yeah, so the People's Harvest Forum is a forum that we founded in 2005. Um, we've done it three years in a row. Now it's on hiatus. If we get funding, we'll do it again. Um, and so it's really about, it's not just about the agricultural piece. It's really a forum on radical food politics. Every year there was a slightly different theme, but ultimately it always came down to looking at why food systems are so important so it's not just that we're going in and saying we want to talk about food justice. We were looking at, okay, why is food important for anyone who cares about social justice or the environment? Um, so why are food systems important? What is happening um, to our food systems? You know, what does it mean when we talk about corporate takeover um, of food systems? What are some of the effects of what's going on on workers and so on? Um, 
you know, what is what are some of the solutions that grassroots groups are proposing around the world, such as, um, you know, one time we had a speaker who spoke about um, squat, you know, the squatting of land in San Francisco that then was turned into community gardens. So these sorts of things. And then how can we work towards building these solutions from the ground up? And so agriculture was not the only part of this, but it was a big part of it each time. So we would reserve a big part of the forum to talk about, okay, from the ground up, what is this, um, what does our food system need to, you know, to be the basis of a world that's more socially just, more sustainable, and so on. And so we would have a good piece of that to talk about, well, we need to build a food system that is not based on industrial corporate farming, you know, with monocultures and so on, but instead ecological farming, you know, agroecology. And there the thing was that every farmer that we invited to speak was vegan. So that is something that I don't think any other conference of the sort has done. I mean, there are vegan conferences, animal rights conferences that will invite like one farmer to talk about this as veganic farming. But it was different because this was a conference on radical food politics that looked at the totality of, um, of our food system, why we need to change it. It was a conference that where many of the speakers were not vegan, the audience was not particularly necessarily an animal rights or a vegan audience, but the farmers were always entirely vegan. And so for us, that was really important because um, these are people who typically have not had much visibility in the rest of the food movement. If you go to other conferences that are similar, other environmental grassroots conferences, veganic farmers really aren't seen very much. And the models that are proposed are typically, you know, it's sort of a given that when you're talking about, let's say, permaculture, it's kind of a given that you're going to include some chickens and, you know, some beehives and so on. And so we wanted people there who had the same skill set, the same knowledge, could speak to the same things with the same authority, but they were vegan and they were showing how to do it as a vegan way. Um, and so it really, I think the first People's Harvest Farm really launched, you know, it provided a big momentum to sort of make veganic into not just something that people are doing as individuals, but into an actual movement. Um, but I will say that at the forum, the goal was not to say, okay, we've talked about all these problems with our food systems, veganic farming specifically is the solution. Um, it was, agroecology is the solution and we're going to promote it as vegans and so everything about the conference was what would it look like if veganism were the dominant norm and that's how we're going to act even if we're a minority we're going to act as if we weren't so the food at our conference is all vegan the farmers are all vegan when they talk about permaculture of course it's vegan permaculture and so yes it did have the effect of um bringing veganics to the forefront and legitimizing it and that was part of the strategy but also we didn't want to do what typically animal rights people do which is you know climate change is a problem okay the answer is veganism it's not that because um while there are advantages to just going plant-based in many ways 
I think there are also disadvantages to promoting that as the solution. And so for us with the forum, veganism was sort of our ethical paradigm in the same way that people who are part of the majority, it's just a given for them that they don't eat cats and dogs and they don't farm cats and dogs. And when they're talking to you about, you know, we need small scale farming with some animals and some grain and whatever, the animals they're referring to are not cats and dogs. It's just a given. So for us, it was like, well, we're going to act that way too with veganism. We're not going to justify it and apologize for it. And we're not going to make veganism out about everything, which is, I think, a um, trap that people fall into. You know, it's like, well, climate change. Okay, well, veganism is the answer. You know, this health issue, veganism is the answer. And I think that that leads to problems. And it, it sort of betrays a way of thinking that is still very shaped by dominant norms, um, even though we don't realize it consciously. Um, yeah, so at the People's Harvest Farm, it wasn't about promoting veganic farming specifically as a solution. It was about promoting small-scale ecological farming and other ways of reclaiming our food systems. That's the solution. And because we're unapologetic animal liberationists, we do that within the framework of our ethics without needing to um, justify veganism on any other basis. We don't need to make the case that this is better for climate change or whatever, because we just don't consider animals to be food. It's it's so fascinating hearing you talk because already as a vegan, you know, you feel sort of out of the box talking with you, as I've explained to you in previous chats, I have these experiences of these sort of mind-bursting moments um, where I didn't even realize things, you know, the way you're describing them. So presenting veganism as a normative ethic, I myself have been in that trap, the exact trap you're describing. And until you acknowledge the trap, you don't even know you're in it, I think. So it's really fascinating hearing you talk. Um, as an ethical vegan, and to and to really reflect, oh yeah, this is um, that's this is one way I have been framing it, and responding and reading the articles. Oh, climate change, change your diet, and and always thinking vegans the answer, vegans the answer. But hearing you, hearing you talk, it's uh, it's really a perspective you don't hear often, but when you hear it, it makes perfect sense, <laughs> and it's it's very unique, and I don't know if this is a question you can easily answer, but I'm also kind of interested how, how you know, this is the way, the way Seed the Commons is presenting things is different. It is quite different from the way many other organizations are functioning or, or the way veganism is presented. Um, do you can you reflect on how maybe how it came to be that way that yeah like yeah um i first want to say though that even though it is a different approach from what a lot of animal rights groups do you know it's sort of a lot of people will be like oh you're talking about this health problem well let me tell you veganism is the solution oh you're talking about you know like desertification veganism is the solution um we don't do that but i do want to make it clear that i'm not saying that there isn't a space to do that i'm not being critical of those groups because i do think that there is a lot of success that has come from that. So for example, the movie Cowspiracy, you know, that's the approach, right? They're saying like, look at these environmental problems, veganism is the solution. Um, so 
you know, that's not our approach. And I think that if that's the 100% message of the animal rights movement, it will fail. However, I think that it has had a lot of success. It's just not enough. Like there, basically what I'm saying is that we need a bit of a multi-pronged approach. And so there is, um, there is room for that and a lot of good has come from it, right? So, you know, a lot of people have gone vegan watching Cowspiracy. Um, so, so I just want to clarify that I'm not sort of like saying that that's that what other people are doing is bad. Um, but there is a crowd that will watch Cowspiracy and will go vegan. And then three years later, they'll watch another documentary and they'll say, oh, well, actually that, you know, that made sense at the time, but now I'm, you know, there's this other data, so I'm going to, and then what vegans do is that they get in this treadmill of, um, oh, no, 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 now I need to debunk that, and now I need to debunk that. And ultimately, the thing is that when we do that, it's because the animals that we've, you know, defined as farm animals, cows, chickens, pigs, somewhere in our mind, they're always on the table. You know, when you watch Cowspiracy and you go vegan, and then three years later, you read other data and then you're like, well, maybe actually hamburger makes sense. It's because you never really internalize that a cow is no different than a dog. It's always somewhat on the table that you could have that hamburger. So, um, so yeah, so I did want to say that, that even though our approach is different, I don't want it to seem that I'm, I think that the other approach is not good. I think that it's been very successful, but not for everyone. And so, you know, there's this other crowd that is not responsive to that. And so our approach is more looking into why and, and responding to that. So how that came to be, you know, why this is my approach, you know, really everything that Seed the Commons has done, you know, you could say from a political perspective, it's like, okay, my interest in food systems and kind of coming to the conclusion that if I want to address, you know, war and imperialism and all that, it's through food and land. Okay, so that's the political. But the the approach of how it, yeah. I'm sorry for the noise. <laughs> the, um, you know, the how, the strategy, um, and how specifically we approach animal liberation, um, how we've gone about organizing to bring about animal liberation has really been shaped by um, just more of a social understanding of, you know, the, the relationship between people who eat animals and people who don't, you know, people who don't are a minority. I think people now are more accustomed to hearing minority in the sense of an ethnic minority. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying, you know, vegans are persecuted as an ethnic minority, but a minority also refers to an ideological minority. And so vegans are, or animal rights activists rather, are pushing for minority change. And so really thinking about it in those terms, um, I think for me, sort of what was, you know, if you if you're asking more to kind of in my personal path, um, I became a vegan in 1994 when I was a teenager. And then and I, I won't have time to really delve into this much in this podcast. And it's the first time I've really talked about this. But um, when I was maybe around 22, I stopped being vegan for about a year. I didn't go full, you know, I, I wasn't eating meat or anything, but I did have some cheese. I did have some, you know, some dairy. 
And, um, and then I started thinking about it more again the following year. And so you know how often ex-vegans sort of act like, well, I used to think like you, but now I know better. Well, I'm an ex-ex-vegan, so I feel like <laughs> I can kind of look to the ex-vegans and be like, I know what you're saying, but, you know, I thought that through. Yeah. Um, so it was my experience of sort of being an, you know, deciding not to be vegan anymore, and then later thinking that through and being like, oh, well, this doesn't really make sense. And then... At the same time, um, I was studying psychology and I had started, um, you know, part of my studies that was focused really on social psychology. And so we were think we were talking a lot about social norms and all of these sort of dynamics, you know, um, being a minority and what that means in terms of the double standards that you live. And I've always been a minority, you know, like I, I'm American and Iranian. I grew up in Europe and you know, being of Iranian Muslim background that has certain, um, you know, certain consequences in terms of how people treat you. And so that sort of period crystallized a lot of things where um, it gave a lot of clarity to the things that I had experienced and thought about to be studying social psychology and also have gone through this phase where I was like, well, I'm not a vegan anymore. And then I thought about, well, why? Um, anyway, and so the what came from that phase was that for me, the focus needed to be really on normativity and understanding, um, really looking at vegans as people who are, I mean, if you're trying to change things actively, um, people who are challenging social norms and also understanding a lot of our experiences, the ways that we're treated by the majority and the ways that we respond to that, you know, as as the double standards that they are, you know, reflecting on my double, the double standards I'd lived, you know, when people address me as like someone of Muslim background, right, they don't, they address you differently. And so, oh, okay, I understand double standards, and I'm seeing double standards here. So that's sort of where this thing came from of, okay, I'm observing that really without meaning to necessarily, we were producing a lot of the same double standards. You know, people who eat meat will um, challenge us with things that don't make sense, ad hominems, or they'll, you know, yeah, they'll just seek ways to invalidate what we're saying or doing because they have a certain power to do so. And we don't tend to challenge that because we're in a minority, hence we don't have power and so on. So it was really that that brought me to thinking that I wanted to do Seed the Commons in a different way, which was um, to act as though we weren't a minority, to really challenge that, to be like, well, you know, to be an unapologetic in a way. Like, I think I, I told you, you know, the example of um, parents. Maybe now it's different because they're more vegans, but it used to be that if you were a parent and you were raising your kid vegan, I mean, the world is like, oh my God, you know, you're abusing your child and you're, you know, you're just dogmatic and you're rigid and you're authoritarian and how in the world can you not let them choose? Um, and a lot of people who don't eat meat, they'll still sort of, or they used to still sort of be like, okay, well, I'm vegan, but I'm going to let my kid choose. Um, but there's so many other ways in which we decide to just educate our kids the way that we want to educate them, and that's fine. Um, and so the majority never, people who are part of the majority never face that sort of thing. You know, they're not like, oh my God, how could you not let your kid eat dog meat? And, um, so basically, I wanted to become conscious of that and to not 
you know, to sort of basically change the way we're functioning and say, well, no, we're going to act as though um, our norms are totally fine and we don't need to justify them. And so, for example, with the People's Harvest Forum um, and the rest of our work, that also helps normalize veganism for the people who come to our event as well. Because a lot of people who come to our events are not vegan, but they're just in a space where that's normalized. Um, and that, you know, that was part of the whole, you know, for me, it's that veganism is an ethic and not a solution because I've met so many ex-vegans and so many ex-vegetarians and so much of um, my work with Seed the Commons has really been inspired by that specifically, you know, talking to ex-vegans, reading the things that they write, understanding kind of the thought. And I'm thinking, well, you know, for example, there's a book, The Vegetarian Myth, that's written by an ex-vegan that comes up every so often. Um, yes, you can go in and debunk the, the various things that the author writes, and I'm, there's nothing wrong with debunking that. But it's also about understanding, okay, well, what is the, you know, what's the psychology of the person here? What was she you know, what was she thinking while she was vegan and what is it that made her eat certain animals afterwards, but not all animals? And so kind of addressing that basically, that 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 issue. That's really interesting. I didn't know that I didn't I didn't know that you were really interested in that, um, that that's what motivated some of your uh, interests was um, looking at ex-vegan stories. I'm also very interested in that. I think it's super interesting, the psychology piece. Um, yeah, how people justify um, moving away from a stance that they might have once referred to as their own ethical stance. I like that a lot, what you said, that veganism is an ethic, not a solution. Mm -hmm. uh, I call myself an ethical vegan, but I think I often look at it as a solution which does pave the way to have a lot of, not defensive moments, but you know, you're challenged all the time because it, it isn't the dominant model. So it, it opens the door to, to um, de debate or arguments or the potential for them because you're always arguing for it as the solution to things. Whereas most people do, don't understand that or don't agree with it. So it's very interesting. I, I, I really like imagining First of all, going to a People's Harvest Forum one day, I would like to. So I hope there are more. And then walking into a space where it is the the norm. You know, I've been to expos and I've been, you know, in, in spaces where it was, you know, lots of vegan things going on in some way. But as we were talking earlier, um, there needs to be a multi-pronged approach, as you said. And I like the idea that, you know, of, of course, there needs to be a spectrum and having that space, which might be radical right now, what you're doing in a way, although I think for many of us, it sounds so familiar too, um, having that space exactly where it's not like, oh, guess what? Everything's vegan and it's all celebrated. It's just how it is. It's, mm -hmm. it's completely normal. So I can really value that. And um, it pushes towards the paradigm shift that we also have been addressing in our discussion. Um, so as I often talk about at Pacific Roots Magazine, especially with vegan farmers, is that, you know, I'm not a farmer. I don't have farming experience. I'm not even very knowledgeable about agriculture. But as, as a vegan, I, I would like to buy produce. I would like to have available to me produce which is grown veganically. So 
<clears throat> I have come to many interviews with that kind of approach that I, I want to build consumer awareness because then, you know, when there's demand that also, you know, increases visibility for the vegan farmers who, as you mentioned, they're not a group that gets farmers in general. I mean, I think this year has been fascinating because now so, so many aspects of the food system have come into play, all the invisible hands and um, part of what led me to found Pacific Roots is I started thinking about farmers and like, you know, restaurants are sexy. I love talking to chefs and restaurant owners too, but what about farmers, you know? And like, I would, I would like to get down to, to that part of the, you know, the production level. So I became very excited to start spotlighting farmers, but it really wasn't until I started speaking to you that again, I had that mind shift of the bigger movement you know, beyond just focusing on, you know, the individual as a consumer, but the bigger shift to, um, the bigger paradigm shift to occur, you know, going beyond consumerism. So if you wanted to share, I know you have a lot to share about that probably, but if you wanted to share a little bit on on that, the, um, the wholesale change. Yeah. Well, I think that in the, so, okay, so see the commons, generally speaking, has really not at all been about consumer change. Um, that's, yeah, we've just not talked about that much in any of our writing or organizing or events or so on. In fact, we've had events where we've very much talked about the opposite, how, um, you know, focusing on consumer change is something that I think, um, you know, the corporate world encourages you to do because it's so ineffective <laughs> in actually changing anything and it's very much to their benefit. And so, um, you know, the whole shot, you know, changing the world with your dollar and so much and so on. And a lot of that is very um, popular with the animal rights movement. Um, I will say sort of this is not the question, so I won't go too much into this. I will say that um, in terms of, you know, veganism here, I'm not talking about like, you know, change, you know, saving the environment and saving farm workers, just in terms of actual animal rights. Um, of course, it makes sense to not buy animal products because you can't completely say that there's no economic impact to a boycott. Boycotts still, you know, this is basically a large scale boycott when you know vegans don't buy animal products and boycotts are effective it's very different to say a group of people are going to boycott something that can be a very effective thing um that's very different from like you as an individual are going to like obsess about every single choice about all the things that's not going to be effective so for animal rights activists to shop vegan specifically with the goal of changing things for animals does make sense because it's effectively a type of boycott and also because it's not only an economic activity it's also a cultural activity so you're basically saying this is not food right so that was a parenthesis but to get to your question um yeah so see the commons generally has not been um focused on consumer choices in terms of making any difference to um labor conditions or, you know, human rights or the environment. Because that is a trap where you're kind of just giving 
your money to the same corporations. You know, you could buy organic berries, but they're produced by the same people who are producing the non-organic berries and the non-organic berries are really not just about you. It's not just you as a consumer don't want the organic the non-organic berries. It's also that producing those berries is harming the farmers, the farm laborers, the kids who live there and so on. Um, and so what we've been really focused on more is um, the awareness that, you know, the need to, for example, um, not use certain pesticides and have effectively organic berries, it really goes beyond the consumer. It goes, you know, it's important for the environment. It's important for people who work in, in food, you know, food production and so on. And so in this example, what you would want is to ban certain pesticides, right? Um, if they're harmful, they're harmful. And so it shouldn't come to you to say, well, I'm going to spend an extra $2 to buy these organic berries because the fact is that those things that are harmful are still being produced and still causing harm. And typically, um, when you do buy the organic berries, not always, but you're going to often be giving your money to the same corporations that are causing problems. So that's, um, you know, that's been sort of our perspective. And we've really um, tried to build awareness around the need to work on food systems from you know, just from a general perspective of improving our society um, and how we live on this planet, that it's not about, you know, specifically looking at the problem of food deserts, even though that's very important and saying, well, this is one place where improvement is needed. Um, or it's not about, well, I could be, um, you know, I could be focusing on work conditions in any industries, but I happen to be focused on um, the work conditions in the food industry. That's also important. The point is that this is sort of the basis of everything else. So if I care about labor conditions, well, food is going to be a big part of it. And also being able to keep one's land and work on one's land is going to prevent people from having to go on and work in many other industries, right? Um, and so for us, really, the things that have been more interesting to talk about in terms of changing food systems have been different types of organizing. We haven't been super prescriptive in terms of what types of organizing are best. For example, at the People's Harvest Forum, we had one year where the theme was the politics of our food system. And so part of that was um, you know, do you engage in electoral politics or what sort of like policy change can you advocate for at local or regional levels? So are those the channels that you're going to work in? But then we've also had speakers who've spoken more, as I said, about squatting land. You know, that's an entirely different type of organizing. So we've really been open to bringing in all of these different ways um, of affecting change. Um, and part of the idea of bringing in all of these perspectives was that different people are going to have different abilities, different interests. And so it sort of opens the door of where could I plug in, right? But generally speaking, we've been much more interested in looking at organizing um, as opposed to just shopping with one's dollar. And I think that that's sort of been one of the problems with, I mean, I think the animal rights movement has it's kind of difficult to talk about a movement because it's really kind of a constellation of different groups. There's not really one homogenous movement, but I think 
the one that's more mainstream and visible, um, that's been kind of an issue that there, there's been a lack of radical perspectives and it's just about just consuming. Um, all right, so having said that, I will say though that specifically with the case of veganic farming, I do think that there's a big role at this point in time for consumers and it's that's a different thing. Um, and even to backtrack a bit, um, as I was saying, like if you're buying your organic berries, often you're just giving your money to the same, you know, you're giving your money to Safeway or to Whole Foods. Well, it's a bit different if you're going to a farmer's market, for example, right? So in terms of consumer change, it's not that, you know, it's not that nothing matters. Um, and I do think that it does make sense as much as possible to remove oneself from the corporate food system and if it is possible support local farmers um, here we have CSAs so you you can um, uh, you know pay to get a weekly box from a farmer you can go to farmers markets so if those things are available I do think that that is an improvement right um, can I just ask you a quick question do you have a do you think the Bay Area is one of the richest CA, CSA regions in the in the country or do you have any numbers on that? That would be kind of interesting to find out. You have a lot there, quite a few options. I'm not sure if it's the richest, but the truth is that the, um, the, the CSA in the Bay Area that I think is the most well-known and is probably the biggest. I mean, I would have to check the numbers, but it's very well-known. It's, you know, they're always tabling everywhere. Um, that CSA um has apparently had a lot of issues in terms of worker rights. So, you know, CSAs can also become some sort of big business that's also exploited of, of um, laborers. We did have a veganic CSA here for a while. Um, actually, the idea came up at a meeting of the working group on veganic farming, which we founded after the first People's Harvest Forum to keep that momentum. So we founded that and then these two local farmers came to that meeting um, and then, you know, someone, um, I think it was Chema, uh, started this idea of, hey, how about a CSA? And they did do that, but it only lasted two years, I believe, and just financially they couldn't make mm -hmm. it. Right? So, yeah. What was yes. that organic working group uh, farming? Veganic work, what was it called? Veganic? Yeah, it was um, Working Group on Veganic Farming. No, not really. Yeah, it was active for a while. Um, we would meet and we would talk about, you know, what can we do <laughs> to right. promote veganic farming? Um, so, you know, like in the case of that farmer, like you can, when you're looking at a macro level, yes, it's true that, you know, shopping with your dollar isn't going to cause the revolution but at a micro level you still do want to support certain farmers right. over certain businesses you do want to help certain individuals make a living off of treating the land well rather than having to go work a corporate job you know at a local level these things really do make sense yeah. and um in this case for example the veganic farmers just weren't able to make it and so after two years they ended up quitting and going back to their corporate jobs and i think that that's really a shame yeah. um, mm -hmm. and even though we do need sort of larger scale um changes and we we should be advocating for more support for small farmers and so on in the meantime nonetheless you know even without achieving those goals in the meantime it would have been possible i think for um 
the Bay Area community to come together in a way that would have supported these farmers and allow, you know, through crowdfunding or whatever, that should have been possible if there had been more awareness around the importance of what they were doing. Um, so yeah, so in terms of veganic farming, having said all of you know what I said about I don't think consumerism is the solution, I think that at this point in time, there really is a very big role um, for consumers to play. Because the thing with veganic farming is that one of the issues it faces is just lack of visibility. Nobody really knows what veganic is or why it should matter. Um, and and I think that consumers can change that. And also one of the reasons it should be visible is that, you know, it's not only about the production on the ground, that's very important, but it's also because of the message that it sends. So, you know, for the animal rights movement, this should be basically a PR thing, right, to support veganics, which is what I've been telling them for years. <laughs> you know, I've never got through. But, um, you know, but basically, when you have successful veganic farmers, yes, maybe you haven't convinced people that veganic farming can work everywhere, that's fine. But at least you've shown that it's not true, that you absolutely need to be farming animals or to be using manure and so on, to have um, you know, rich, biodiverse, ecologically sustainable farms, right? So it's it's a really important message to put out there. Um, so yeah, so I think that that's one of the reasons to support veganic farming and also, you know, consumers should want to have access to veganic foods. I mean, consumers, vegan consumers at this point, you know, what I often say is that the food movement has created this false dichotomy um, where they're saying, you know, either we have Monsanto and Bayer and, you know, monocultures and GMOs and pesticides on one hand, or on the other hand, we have small-scale ecological farming, and that necessarily includes cows and manure and chicken and so on. And this is not true at all, but they've created this belief. It's a false dichotomy. However, this false dichotomy is actually a real dichotomy when it comes to consumer choices, because if you're a consumer, concretely, those are your two choices. You don't really have much of a third option. Um, so that's what you have to choose between. And so consumers should want to have a third option. And so I think that at this point in time, because the veganic movement is so small and veganic farmers are so invisible and just, you know, typically they're very small farmers with very limited um, markets, consumers can really make a big difference in creating a huge demand that then would be filled, would, you know, provide support for the veganic farmers that already exist, would encourage um, other farmers to go veganic and to be able to market themselves that way. Um, at this point, I think they feel like, well, you know, there would be no advantage. Um, and, and I would say, I think that the animal rights movement, you know, they've started to have some interest in this, but over the past couple of years, but from what I've seen, it's mostly been about, um, you know, kind of making a show of like, we've transitioned like this sort of cattle farmer to this, um, to become a veganic farmer, which is also good. But part of the idea of those sorts of, part of the reason those sorts of stories 
are so interesting to people is that it's easy to get funding for that sort of thing because that you can make a big show of it and so you can get funding that you're doing these transitions but at the same time there are people who are already veganic farmers right now who are basically living in poverty <laughs> and who need support and that's maybe less sexy to say you know i'm going to actually like give these guys fifty dollars a month or whatever but that's also important um, so anyway, so I do think that in terms of building the veganic movement at this point in time, consumers can p play a big role in just making this very visible. Um, and then, you know, and then we go from there, there might be pitfalls, you know, maybe it would go the way of organics. That's a different conversation. But, um, at this point, I think consumers should be creating demand basically. And once the demand is created, it will be easier to fill it. And at the same time, people will see that it's not true that you need animals to have a certain type of farm. Right. I, I just took so many notes of everything you just said. I love that, that for the AR group, this should be a PR thing. And that's how I can help. <laughs> I think I, can, I like the PR, the PR mode. So that's how I can help this issue. But I also thought it was really fascinating. I want to go back to something you said, the AR movement um, ha has been focused on changing the world with the dollar. And, and that's something you know, when I was talking about how I was focusing from a consumer perspective, and then you were reflecting that the, the AR, AR movement's very involved in that too. And of course, anybody who's a vegan knows that shift when you go vegan and are supporting, you know, you feel like you're making the right choice with your dollar and this and that. But really talking with you, again, the expansion and moving beyond that. But I also wonder, do you think this this focus within the AR movement of, of changing the world with the dollar is also more connected to like the mainstream disconnect of people yeah, uh, yeah not understanding food systems I mean, yeah. relatively new too so i think that's um also really interesting and, and we're talking in 2020 you know this year of the pandemic all this media that has come out about food systems and i'm sure you're pretty dialed into that if not working on some of these issues but so so realizing how I don't know if it's if it's accurate to say this, but how fragile the system is, and 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 um, I know the issues that I was hearing about here were uh, you know about mig huge issues with the migrant workers and a lot of social justice issues. And this is not something that I've grown up paying attention to. You know, I would go to the grocery. I do definitely prefer farmers market or CSA, but I grew up going to the grocery store. I didn't want to think about who's picking my food, who's who's behind you know the production of food. And I feel like this year, sort of, that became more of a mainstream issue um, because food systems were threatened. I don't know if that's too alarmist to say, but um, certainly here in Europe, I don't know how it was in, in the States, but there was so many stories here in Europe of, um, they were, yeah, they're having harvest issues because they couldn't get their uh, <clears throat> migrant workers you know, over borders. Yeah. And often the local national population didn't want to do those jobs. They're not used to, they don't want to go do those jobs. They're not used to doing those jobs and they don't, they're not interested. So um, yeah, it does seem like a year of, of movements in this area and a lot of the budding interest in gardening and that. So it feels like the time is ripe, but then some yeah. of these issues that you bring up, a lot of the justice issues, um, they're, they're, they're really intense and they, I feel like they're not talked about often. They're not, um, if we're, we're going to talk about food production too, I mean, we're vegans, but going into the slaughterhouse issues and 
a lot of those justice issues for workers in, in these really horrific conditions. Um, so I wonder, what do you have any thoughts on that, on why, why I would say we collectively, societies, have such a mainstream disconnect with food systems? Um, first of all, yeah, I totally agree that really just, you know, when I say that in the AR movement, there's been more of a focus on consumerism. Um, absolutely, it's just a reflection of, of the mainstream. It's not right. that this, you know, particular problem in this movement, you know, it's just because these are people of the mainstream who decided to go vegan, right? Um, so that's, that's definitely true. Um, I think, though, that I mean, the AR movement, again, like what I've seen of it, I don't think that it necessarily makes sense to just sort of talk about it as if it were a monolith. There's right. actually different. Um, but the, the part of it that would be per perhaps considered more mainstream, more visible, more well-funded, et cetera, um, you know, there is very much that focus. And I think it is largely because people are, you know, basically people, mainstream people, right, who, who go vegan, these aren't particularly radical, um, you know, politically active people. Um, but that's sort of the thing that I guess that I'm pointing out is that the movement doesn't really have radical voices within it. I mean, that part of the movement is Perhaps they're elsewhere, but they're not. They don't really get much visibility and much voice there. And I, I would say they're not really even necessarily welcome um, there. So there's very much. That's the thing. There's very much of a mainstream kind of perspective in the AR movement. Um, however, I, you know, it kind of depends what we're talking about here. Of like, what what should it look like? I, I do want to point out, perhaps, you know that um, I don't want to fall into this thing where we start guilting animal rights people for not being knowledgeable about all the issues and not working about on all the issues. Um, because again, these are just mainstream people and we don't go about in the streets telling someone, you know, how dare you not know about this and how dare you not know about that. And for me that, you know, that's something I've seen a lot in the AR movement and I've I really don't like it, actually. Um, going back to sort of the normativity piece, I think that that, you know, without getting too much into it, but I think that that actually reinforces that same normativity. You know, we're holding these people to a different standard. We think that just because you have empathy for a cow, magically you should somehow all of a sudden be aware of all these different issues when there's no way for you to be aware of them. Um, but so, so I don't think that it should be necessarily the goal of the animal rights movement to work on all these different things. Like it's good for people to have focus, right? It's not the goal of the animal rights movement to solve um, the issues facing farmers and farm workers and so on. Um, and I don't support groups that advocate for that sort of dissolving of focus. I think that that's a very negative trend that um, that has been happening in the AR movement and in other movements as well, where we're sort of faulted for having a single focus, right? There's a difference between having a single focus um, and not harming other groups and saying, well, it's not okay to have a single focus and now I need to solve all the problems. Right. Um, so anyway, so I, I want to clarify that I don't fault people for not knowing all the things or not solving all the things. 
Um, so at the same time, I do think that it's important for anybody who cares about social justice to look into food systems. And so for me, that's been the thing. Like, you know, there's been a lot of this idea that sort of the default vegan is someone who just cares about animals and doesn't care about humans. And only like a select kind of minority of vegans are also, you know, cool enough to care about humans. And I think it's, if we looked, if we did a study on it, and I kind of did do a study on it for my master's, like, you know, I looked at people's food choices and and I had a very small sample size, but vegans actually tended to be more politically aware and more politically active on a bunch of different issues, right? And I would guess that in a lot of circles, that might still be the case today, right? That if you take just on, I mean, we'd have to do a study on it, but to actually know, but basically, if you take 100 non-vegans and 100 vegans, the vegan crowd might have actually more people who care about the environment and who care about workers and so on, right? So basically, I don't think that, <laughs> I know this is becoming a bit unclear, so let me, I don't think that one should go and tell someone who's an animal rights activist, it's not okay to just focus on animals. You have to focus on all this other stuff, right? I, I disagree with that. However, I'm not only a vegan. I'm also someone who, even if I were not vegan, I care about changing our food systems, right? And therefore, I want to bring people to my cause, um, whether they're vegan or not. I just think that more humans need to care about changing our food systems because that's where you know, that's where change needs to happen. That's really the basis of um, so many other things. That's the basis of our society and of how we interact with nature. And so I want to bring people to that cause. I do not go and tell vegans, oh my God, how can you be vegan and not work on this? I'm completely against that message. However, as someone who wants to bring people to that cause, vegan or not, um, it seems to me that I'll have a higher success rate bringing vegans in than non-vegans because and i'm not sure again we would have to get data on this but it seems that often those are people who already care about a lot of issues right and so my message has never been you if you work on this you have to work on that but rather it's you know this is this is the focus to get social change to happen you know um so in terms of sort of the mainstream, and, and again, I agree, like, I think that the fact that a lot of vegans don't have certain sensitivities, don't have certain knowledge, it's it's just because they are, you know, mainstream people and, and not um, people who have been particularly, you know, active in a lot of movements. Um, I think there's two questions here. Like, why is there such a disconnect with our food systems? That was one question. And then why is there such a focus on consumerism, which is also something that um, certainly over the past 20 years has really been a thing, right? Um, Just very quickly, I want to share that by by pointing out the disconnect, and I mentioned the AR movement, I, and I meant that to say it's because they're humans, because collectively we have... I'm saying we, you know, as collective, as, as humanity, as, soci as societies, and this only became clear to me recently. And when I talk about it, it might, it might sound so, yeah, I, I, I do appreciate taking caution with this. Um, it might sound like I'm shaming people, like, where, how can you be an AR, you know, an AR activist or a vegan and not know about 
mm-hmm. uh, agriculture and farming and all this stuff. I just came to it myself. So it's it's more a sort of like, hmm, why as societies yeah. are we so disconnected from our food systems? You know, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that why we're disconnected, a lot of people could speak to that better than I can. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we've been urbanizing for decades now. And so most of us don't live in the countryside. Those of us who do even aren't necessarily, um, you know, in the global north, you could live in sort of in small towns and even then be disconnected from it. Um, So I think that we're just completely removed from where food is produced physically, geographically. Um, I think that a lot of animal rights people have actually pointed this out in terms of meat consumption, right? That there used to be um, more like the butcher, you know, you would see the animals and you would see the butcher and you'd see the animal killed. And now we're also removed from that. You know, we have like a little thing in plastic. And so we have a psychological disconnect. But that's the same with a lot of how our food is produced and where it comes from. Um, You know, there's always these stories of like children taking a field trip somewhere and like some little kid has never seen an eggplant. You know, you always hear stuff like that because we've we don't live in, in the countryside anymore. And it used to be in the global north that it was like, I mean, I think in India, um, about 75 percent of the population works in agriculture, if I'm not mistaken. So that used to be how it was kind of everywhere. You know, people just worked in agriculture and um and with mechanization and so on, we don't. I think in the U.S. it's what, maybe one or two percent of the population works in agriculture. However, a lot of people do work in our food systems and other parts of our food system. And and again, I might be not exactly on point with the percentages, but I think in the U.S. it's about 25 percent of people. That's a huge yeah. amount of the workforce. So even though we're not in agriculture, we are in food systems still, like the transportation and the processing and so on. Um, So, yeah, part of that is just geographical. Um, Part of that is, I think, a class divide, you know, like there are people who aren't farmers, but they're still, you know, driving your frozen food somewhere, but there's, we don't interact um, with people of different wealth levels and so on. yeah and it's just not it's just not um it's just not talked about even though it's so foundational to everything else and i think that in a lot of societies typically farmers have been looked down on so to be able to leave the land and not be a farmer and do something else and go to the city has been that you're moving up in the world um, and so Via Campesina, which is an international peasant movement, they've actively fought against that. And they very proudly use the word peasant, for example, in English. Um, I mean, in French, for example, they say paysan, which is not, doesn't have a negative connotation. But in English, peasant often does have a negative connotation. But they still use the word because they're like, no, we're proud of being peasants. And we want to um, encourage the youth to stay in the countryside and to be happy and proud to work the land. And what we need is more support for that to happen. We need to do away with policies that are making this impossible and so on. But also at a cultural level, we need to be proud of this. So there is, I think, historically, um, 
probably in most countries, the sort of classist idea of like the city and, you know, and then the countryside is sort of the backwater. And, you know, so I think there is some of that, that once people do go to urban spaces, they just lose that completely because it's not particularly valued. Um, and so, you know, part of what we had done at some point was um, give gardening workshops and talking a lot about sort of reclaiming space in the city. Um, and the thing is that I don't think that you're going to solve all the problems by growing foods in cities. You're going to improve access to vegetables for some people, and that's great. But in and of itself, it's not going to solve all the problems because there will still be monocultures, you know, in Iowa and so on. But what it does do is that it brings a certain consciousness to the city around the idea of reclaiming land and reclaiming our food systems and being autonomous and growing it for ourselves. And that hopefully can then inspire people to do much more. Um, yeah, to, to value those things, to see, you know, okay, well, growing chard, you know, means something and, and maybe we can start reclaiming bigger pieces of our of our food system. Um, in terms of like the importance given to changing the world with one's dollar, I mean, I think that's just been corporate messaging because it benefits them so much. You know, it's like Whole Foods is obviously um, doing really well when people think that going to Whole Foods and spending a lot of money there is going to be the thing that that changes the world, right? And I don't miss that. I don't miss, uh, right after I went vegan, I would go to Whole Foods and it's like, whoosh, it's like, you're, yeah, it's a trap. Everything that says vegan, you're like, oh my God, I got to have that. <laughs> and it's it's type of it's a type of consumer trap too. I, I do acknowledge that. Although it felt good and it felt like, oh, I'm... No, I mean, it's nice to, to you know, have the things that you like and to eat good food, like totally. The thing is that if if you were someone who in another life, let's say, would have been spending your Saturdays like volunteering with like, you know, a farm workers organization. And instead of that, you're saying, well, I'm shopping at Whole Foods, therefore I'm doing my part. That's the issue, right? Um, and so I think that's pretty much what we've been encouraged to do. I think that, um, that, that that's been sort of the messaging that we've received, not only in terms of food, actually, also in terms of clothing and, you know, other things. Um, that's been the messaging that we've received that we're going to change things by shopping differently um and so it sort of weakens radical movements really um you 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 think that buying organic berries versus like the regular berries is going to make a big difference and therefore you don't spend your saturday volunteering to actually change laws that would ban the pesticides that are causing harm right um and one of the effects i think that this change has had is that we often forget what the issue was to begin with. So something that I've pointed out sometimes is that um, I think my mom, it was my mom who told me she used to volunteer um, with the United Farm Workers, I think, like back in the day. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she says, oh, it's so strange that people think that organic is like for rich people and so on, because back then it was the farm workers. And still today, like when I've been with farmers and farm workers, like they're the ones talking about a lot of the environmental harm that comes from GMOs and these things. And so making it just about consumers, you actually forget what change you're trying to 
address in the first place. And we start to believe that it's just about me, myself, and I, what do I want to put in my body? And sometimes we can, you know, just forget that the issue started because there are certain people who are affected by these products or, you know. Absolutely. I, I like how you ex expand that notion. Um, I want to share a little personal thing about the whole changing, you know, changing with a dollar because I recently started um, a kind of CSA, I think, here. It's it's not super close by, so I don't know if it can be qualified as a CSA, but it's a, far, it's a box of veggies weekly from um, a farm down south. And since I've begun that, I mean, that's a change I've made with my well, crooner because we're in Sweden, but that's a change I've made, you know, um, with my consumer choice. And I have not, I mean, I still go to the grocery store, but I haven't bought vegetables from the grocery store in forever. Feels good to support um, a, a farm, you know, a smaller farm. And guess what? The vegetables taste like 10 times better. They actually also taste, I mean, on a whole nother note, they, I, I'm always telling my husband, you, our kitchen smells differently. Ideally, I would prefer to be growing all those vegetables myself. But I also live, you know, in a city. And so I do really love to think about the spectrum of, of behavior and the types of people. And like, I love what you said about, um, you know, gardening workshops and reclaiming space in the cities. And that might not that's not going to change things system wide, but it can stimulate consciousness. And I took, I, I quoted you here, growing chard means something. I love that. Um, it really, it does like, I'm sure you've seen in your gardening workshops or, you know, um, when you hear the stories, right, of kids in urban gardens who are like for the first time, maybe working with soil and seeing something grow. I mean, and this, it's so, it's so basic. Mm -hmm. um, but also, so if, I don't know if I want to use the word radical, but it, it is in a way. Sometimes it's the first time people are working with Earth ever and, see, and eating something that they've grown themselves. So I'm really excited um, to keep in touch with you about all of that and to hear more about that. Also, this year seems to have that a lot of that seems to have... Um, uh, grown in interest. I'm hearing that in America, the demand for CSAs has gone up during this past several months. Um, and I can only hope that, uh, you know, the movements that you're talking about, so the things that you're doing, that it can spread through communities even more and more and more. How do we get to the, I love hearing you talk, because I, I think in a more expansive way, but then it's also overwhelming. Like, how do we get to that big systems change? Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, there's the vision and then there's the how do we get there, like the vision is, okay, we do away with industrial farming and we have agroecology, but then how do we get there? And so that's why I was saying, like, I don't consider, I mean, there's so many different roles to be played and it's not that everybody is going to go out and become a farmer and I don't want to go out and become a farmer. Um, which was also the idea with Seed the Commons, like, well, we're not going to do that. So we're going to be in the city and we're going to inspire other people in the city to start getting involved in these movements. Um, so that's why also, you know, we're not necessarily focused on one avenue of change, but we liked having a forum where we could invite people who had been active in multiple different ways so that they could 
you know, provide an example and inspiration to people who are there about how they could become active because there's so many places to plug in, right? Um, whether you're working at an international level, at a local level, there are just so many different ways, whether you're working more, um, you know, to really change policy or if you're doing things in a more sort of grassroots kind of direct action way, I think that um, these can be all different parts, right? As long as we have an idea of what we're going towards, um, we can get there like, yeah, basically with a multi-pronged approach. approach. Um, I did think of saying something regarding the um, question of consumerism. Can I go back to that quickly? Absolutely, please, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I had noticed the fact I had noticed a few times, not only myself, but others as well, um, that there was a bit of a, a difficulty in communicating beyond the question of consumerism within the animal rights crowd because there was such like they were so accustomed to just being focused on the question of consumption, that it was difficult to bring the conversation elsewhere. And everything was seen through that lens. And so I think that it's important to kind of keep pushing in that way. So a few examples that I remember, um, one of the examples was not myself, this was someone else who, who related to me. Um, this was a woman who was, um, you know, active in the animal rights movement, and gave, I guess, a talk somewhere um, where she spoke about, you know, the importance of sort of building up veganics and so on. And um, someone who was there at that meeting or, or event um, said to her, and it's very interesting because the person who was speaking, um, you know, is a woman of color that is like, has very radical politics, you know, has been involved with a lot of like grassroots groups and everything. And then the person who asked her this question was actually um, sort of much more established, you know, more well-funded and so on. So it's kind of interesting that that question was in that direction. But in any case, so she spoke about veganics. And then the question that someone asked her was, yeah, but, you know, this seems like it's just a really privileged kind of thing. You know, like we're telling people to go vegan and that's already hard. Um, you know, it's hard because sometimes you don't have access to certain vegan foods or sometimes they're more expensive. And then now we're supposed to go tell people like, no, 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 vegan's not good enough. You need to shop veganics. Like this is really <laughs> kind of asking too much. And it's really like a privileged thing to be going around like checking if all of your food is veganic. But the thing was that that's not what her message was. That's never been my message either. Like, I mean, there are places that consumers can get a few veganic things, but really they can't eat veganic. What they need is to build the demand, right? Um, and often we're not even talking about that at all. We're talking about other things, right? Like how can just all the different ways that you can build a veganic food system, like there should be more educational opportunities for farmers who are, you know, getting started and so on. Like it's just a very big topic. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I've never really had the message of, you know, you guys are bad if you're not buying veganics and this is something you have to do. And that's not what that person was saying either. But it's the information is filtered into that. So what you're saying is not being heard because 
the assumption is that we're always talking about consumer choices, even when that's not the topic at all. And so it becomes, well, this is a privileged thing and people can't have access to that. And so we shouldn't be talking about it when we're in an entirely different framework and there should be a willingness and a capacity to change frameworks and not always be within this consumption framework, right? Um, and it's it's such, it's so habitual to be in that framework that even when that's not what you're talking about, people kind of think that you're talking about that anyway. And so they're working within that framework. Um, you know, and I've, I've seen the same thing with myself, not necessarily with veganics, but I remember once giving a talk um, about basically the, the um, exploitation and social justice issues that exist along the food chain, right? So from farmers to farm workers to, you know, other types of workers to consumers and how all of these different groups face um, injustice because of the corporate takeover of our food systems. And one of the questions um, was that I got was something, you know, along the lines of, okay, well, um, you know, farmers in Bolivia are suffering because, um, you know, vegans are, this was a woman who's vegan, but she's like, yeah, but vegans are buying quinoa and so farmers in Bolivia are suffering and so what should we do? And that's not, that was very much not at all what I was saying. I don't think that it's consumers who are really causing the problems, right? Um, you know, and in terms of farmers in Bolivia, like farmers, of everywhere facing issues and the issue of quinoa in Bolivia at some point got you know there were I can't don't even know if you remember this but the Guardian had like a couple articles about like the quinoa and all that which was a bit ridiculous because not only vegans buy quinoa and so on and so forth and it was a way to sort of say well vegans are you know doing harm too but in any case it was interesting to me that she brought that up because she was sort of there in the sense of like, okay, we're doing stuff wrong, and I know we're doing stuff wrong, and so, um, you know, the consumers are causing these problems, and so what do we need to do differently? When that wasn't, we weren't talking about consumers, and I don't believe that it's really the consumers who are the main ones at fault often. Mm -hmm. And so it's always brought back to that. And, um, you know, another time when we were having a workshop, specifically it was a workshop on how, um, basically corporations defang radical movements by turning, you know, by promoting consumption. So kind of what we were talking about now, right? So instead of marching with farm workers in like the 60s, 70s, now it's like, I'm gonna buy this. Um, and how this is something that we're manipulated into and it's a way of defanging movements. Um, and that's really not the framework we need to be working in. And someone came to the workshop and sort of started saying, well, you know, my grandmother doesn't have the capacity to go buy things that, you know, and it just had, it was completely off topic, but there was this assumption that we're getting together. And so obviously we're talking about what's a more socially, socially just way to consume when we weren't about that at all and we were in fact saying the opposite that that's not where the focus needs to be so yeah so i think that um it's just been it's come from you know it's come from those who benefit from it and it has affected of course not only the animal rights movement but just the mainstream right that this is how you're gonna create social change um but I think that part of what's kind of keeping that going 
is that we're sort of in this like social justice kind of woke culture where we get a lot of pleasure and a lot of social status out of blaming each other for all the things we're doing wrong. And so that kind of keeps the inertia also of this like consumer thing, because then we can blame each other for like, you didn't make the right consumer choice, or you did make the right consumer choice, but that's just because you're privileged and so on. And so we're kind of in this little space that's not necessarily the most relevant space to be in. Right. Interesting. This is, these are huge issues. We can, I, I, I think you need a lecture series on all of these issues. Sorry, I'm going to, I'm rambling too. No, I want to have another talk. I don't think we're over an hour now and the, right. you brought up the privilege thing, which is huge. And I love talking about that and the whole, the whole myth that veganism is, you know, it's a privilege and it's only for, you know, privileged people. And, and, and then what this woman said in the audience who was veering off course any, anyway, but, um, but then that then going veganic would be just like ramping it up. It does, it does make it the focus on, yeah, that individual consumer in the store, like hunting around for labels when it's, it's not about that. And I, I get that. Um, but it took me a while to, I think, pull back also from this heavy consumer focus. But it's extremely interesting. I do. I, I would like to have a whole talk podcast talk with you on privilege. I think that would be super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the home, the myth of it. Um, and then in some ways, the reality, I, again, we bought up Whole Foods. I mean, I, I lived in the States. Um, there was a Whole Foods by me when I went vegan. And I, I remember I had to stop going there, you know, because um, it's ridiculous, you know, and um, I learned to shop in a different way. I learned to eat in a different way and I learned to live in a different way. That's one of the notes I took down when you were talking is um, changing, change, uh, instead of changing things by shopping, changing things by living, you know, so, so pulling kind of out of that don't know what to call it but the trap of the matrix of it but it it takes time right and it it's um some people it might happen really quickly and it's yeah it's not like you know a series of steps necessarily but um adjusting and and learning um and adapting and if it's also for people who are interested in these issues you're talking about uh sometimes i think what i like about talking with you is that sometimes you're interested in issues that you're not even aware of and it takes being open to listening to people and um really 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 listening so when you talk about these conferences and these workshops i can only imagine i haven't been to a lot of i haven't been to any ar conferences i've only been to like vegan expos but i'm sure there's a lot of very interesting moments when your own thoughts are challenged and you might think you're going somewhere where you're around a lot of like minds, but no, we're still all, you know, have differences and we come to these ideologies from different backgrounds and life perspectives. So it's um, very fascinating and unique listening to you, I think. And we're over an hour, but there's still a couple of things I want to ask you first. Uh, we were going to mention something about the climate march from 2018, because that was kind of a significant thing um, one of many significant things that Seed the Commons organized. So do you want to mention anything about that climate march? Yeah, so um, in 2018, in September, um, uh, there was a climate march that happened in San Francisco. Um, the governor of 
California had organized, um, I'm not remembering the name, but basically a big climate conference. Um, but the climate conference was not going to really feature sort of radical grassroots solutions, right? Um, it was sort of going to be the big players of academia and corporations who were going to be promoting false solutions. Um, false solutions being, I think it was a term that was coined also by Via Campesina, false solutions are basically solutions that look like they're addressing the problem, but in reality, they just keep the status quo, right? So that would be the same as like shopping with your dollar, that would be a false solution. Um, so, you know, or GMOs to feed the planet, you know, so in response to that conference, uh, a lot of organizations, a lot of grassroots movements in California and in the Bay Area specifically came together to organize this huge climate march. And it was the largest climate march, um, I think, that had ever happened on the West Coast. Yeah. So Seed the Commons um, became very involved in both the general organization of the march and also the organizing of a farmer's contingent. So for me, I mean, it wasn't all a farmer's contingent. There were a lot of non-farmers, but basically it was led by farmers, right? Like at the front with the banner. And so for me, that was just really a historical event. I mean, it was really important um, because, you know, we're basically walking in the streets of San Francisco. We're talking about how to address climate change. And we have the word veganic on our banner. So not only were um, bringing visibility to this and, you know, we have farmers from around the world, but, you know, around like the U.S. and Canada, like it's already pretty good. Um, you know, who are walking there and it's like, these are veganic farmers, this is how they farm, and this is the solution really for climate change. And so the message there was, um, you know, first of all, the need to focus on agriculture, which was not something that even within the grassroots kind of march, even within those circles, it wasn't really talked about very much. It was mostly a focus on like fossil fuel, which is of course important, but um, but not agriculture. And certainly in the larger conference, also not agriculture. So we were like, well, you really can't talk about addressing climate change if you're not going to talk about agriculture. Right. And then, you know, and then we had um, something to the effect of like small small farmers lead the way or something like that. And you know, there's there's been a lot of sort of marches, like climate marches and anti-globalization and different kind of marches around the world where you have farmers and where you have a message around small farmers. Um, and I think that that in and of itself is a very important message in the context of climate change. But in this case, they were specifically veganic farmers, right? And so, you know, this was not only a veganic contingent. There wasn't any other farmer contingent elsewhere in the march. It was we were charged with organizing the farmer's contingent, and it was veganic. And so that's really been what my vision has been from the get-go, like with the People's Harvest Farm and so on, is that we become leaders in the movement. That's the thing. Like, you know, when we organize the People's Harvest Farm, it's not just for vegans. It's for anybody who wants to learn about how you know, Coca-Cola is going to manipulate like perception of, you know, it's all of these issues for anyone who's interested in radical food politics. You come there, but we're also normalizing veganism while we're doing it. 
And we're becoming leaders in this movement because the people who are currently the leaders are constantly promoting animal ag. And so we need an alternative voice. And so that's what we succeeded in doing with the climate march where, you know, we took charge of the agricultural piece of the march and um, the small farmers in question were all vegan and they were showing that that's something that's possible and we have the word veganic on a banner um, and so on. And so, you know, I, I know that we don't have a lot of time, so I won't go too much into it. Like for me, there has been the thing of like veganism is an ethic and not a solution. And that was part of the organizing. It's like, okay, small farmers are leading the way and these are all vegan farmers. But also we were talking about veganics as a solution in that context. And I think, and this is something I used to say when I was organizing it, it also depends on the context. If you're showing up at an event where there's a question of at a large scale, what do we do to address climate change? It's fine to say, well, you know, this model would really help. Right. So that's different than as an animal liberationist saying, I need to find all the ways that veganism is a solution. You see, because like here we're in a context of talking about what's the best thing in terms of large scale change. Um, so why not talk about the benefits not only of small scale farming, but small scale veganic farming specifically. Um, and I think it was a very necessary kind of counterbalance to the rest of what was going on, because not only was there not much focus on agriculture, unfortunately, after, you know, after all these years of, you know, so many, you know, you have like the vegans like Caspiracy and those guys who've really shown um, a lot of issues with agriculture. You have like, you know, the other people who aren't vegan, but who've also done a lot of work showing how much agriculture counts. And nonetheless, it still wasn't a big part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So that was really necessary. But also um, the Bay Area is a place where people are incredibly enthusiastic about, you know, local organic dairy and that sort of thing. And so, for example, um, on our, there's there's a blog post on our blog. I can't remember the details, but there was some sort of award around like climate resiliency or whatever, you know, something benefiting the climate being given out and locally. And um, it was given to like two farms that grazed animals and restaurants were participating in that. Like there was a whole discourse at the same time going on around. Um, you know, supporting the local farmers that are grazing these cows to, you know, to address climate change. So it's important that we had that veganic voice there. Um, I think that was really historic because it was the small farmers in question are veganic farmers. We're bringing the word out there. We're normalizing it. And we're sort of putting ourselves at the forefront of a movement instead of having veganic farmers always be kind of invisible in the back, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a difficult thing to organize. Um, honestly, that I could talk about that during the whole podcast. It was a very difficult thing to organize. Um, the honestly, I'd say that the local animal rights movement was kind of more of an obstacle rather than a support. I mean, not only was there not much support, but very much kind of the opposite um, for various reasons. But that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before of like this disconnect with food systems and so on. I mean, I don't think that 
you know, I wouldn't say, well, if you care about animals and want to help animals, therefore you have to, you know, work on all this other stuff because if not, you're a hypocrite. However, from a PR perspective, the animal rights movement does need to understand that if we don't take that space, the people who are talking about transforming agriculture um, and having more ecologically sustainable systems, those people are promoting you know, the consumption and farming of animals. And so from a PR perspective, I'm not asking you to care about social justice necessarily. I mean, it'd be good to, for you to care, but I'm not saying as a vegan, you have to care. Um, but as a vegan, from a PR perspective, people should understand that it's important to have veganic farmers in these spaces and have this visibility, right? And I think that if the animal rights movement had had that understanding, we would have been able to have some support and do something larger than what we did. It was quite large, it was a success, but it could have been more. And I think that that understanding has been sort of lacking. Maybe this, maybe it will be windows of opportunity for future events, you know? Um, one more question. So you have a chapter in a book? Is it yeah. A book? So, so Rethinking Food and Agriculture. Do you want to share a bit about that? So it's not published yet. It, okay. I think it's coming out in October. Okay. Um, it's really exciting. It's sort of just along the lines of what we were talking about before. Um, the book is, you know, Rethinking Food and Agriculture. There's a second part to the title. Um, and the two editors are um, a father and a daughter. Both of them have worked with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. Um, you know, the dad is very much an expert on, you know, small scale agriculture and so on. And so this is not a book for an animal rights crowd. I mean, this is really an academic book on different parts of changing our food system. Um, what's exciting is that both the father and the daughter are vegan. Mm. Um, the daughter is now, you know, hardcore animal rights activist, um, or she would probably say animal liberation activist, I would also. Um, so they've basically done what I've been talking about, which is that they're going to write this book or, you know, they're going to edit this book on changing our food systems. Many of the authors are not vegan themselves. However, they're going to bring that perspective in it as well. And, you know, when we talk about the vision we have for the future, you know, you can talk about the harm that GMOs have done in various countries without bringing veganism or animal rights into it, right? But when you're talking about, okay, where do we go from here? What's the world we're trying to build? That's where it becomes important. And so my chapter is talks about that, you know, talks about building a veganic movement, um, as well as the importance of grassroots movements, you know, not, not sort of solutions that come from the top down, but also being a bit critical of you know, you can say, well, we need the grassroots and blah, 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 but the people who make up these movements are still human, right? And we can still be a bit critical of what's going on um, and dissect the cultural norms and so on. And so that's a bit what I do. You know, we need solutions to climate change are going to come from the grassroots. They cannot come from the top down, but we can also be a bit critical and understand um, some of the biases and so on of 
the people who make up the grassroots. And so there I speak a lot about why it is that grassroots food movements are so focused on um, grazing in particular, but also just generally how they validate animal agriculture. Um, and I speak a bit about veganics as what we should be going towards. And so, yeah, it's really exciting because these are two people who, the editors are people who are well-established, well-respected, and who are very much um, in this line of the solutions we propose are going to be within a vegan ethic. It's probably, I mean, my guess is that, my guess is that it's the first book of the sort, basically, where you have an academic book that is looking, you know, it, yeah, that is looking at um, various problems with our food systems, but where it takes that vegan ethic in terms of the solutions, right? And that it's not what the animal rights movement tends to do, which is completely understandable, is that we tend to speak a bit to the choir, whereas this is not um, preach to the choir, whereas this is not really going to do that, I think. And that's that's huge. That's extremely valuable. When you were first talking about the book, you mentioned the editors. That was a, I thought that was a twist that they're actually also vegan. I didn't expect that when you were yeah. talking about yeah, the book is for academic audience and they happen to be so. So it's 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 like really moving along um, because there's these people in all these different areas who you're you are a pioneer really. I think thought pioneer in, in, in action as well, um, but there's others as well. So this is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So their perspective, you know, they've, their perspective is really, you know, we understand the importance of changing our food systems. We, you know, the various authors of the book have a good understanding of what the problems have been. Um, but in talking about solutions, let's bring non-human animals into our circle of compassion. And so there's my chapter where I speak about, you know, building a veganic movement and so on, but there's also another chapter from a philosopher who speaks about more, goes more into the philosophy of why animals matter and, you know, animal liberation. So, you know, it's like they're, they're bringing that into it. You know, we're, we're talking about these things, but let's not limit our circle of compassion to, some animals, but bring all animals in there. So, um, yeah, I think it's very exciting. It's very, it sounds very interesting. I look forward to hopefully reading it. It's, um, and we could talk for so much longer, but I'm gonna say let's wrap it up. I do wanna end on one note. We already talked at length about the People's Harvest Forum. I think we could also talk so much more about that, but just for the sake of closing up on an additional interesting note, there have been many interesting notes here. But um, I think I asked you this before, but uh, when you talk about the People's Harvest Forum, I'm, I'm positive I'm not alone uh, in thinking I would like to attend something like that someday. So um, could you envision having that um, anywhere else on Earth? I mean, you're in the Bay Area right now, but is there some idea to potentially bring the idea to other world regions? Yeah, I think that would be really a positive thing, honestly. Um, at the very beginning, you know, when you have like big ideas, I was like, oh my God, every year it's going to be a different city. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. You know, that just didn't happen because you should be funded for that. Yeah, there's the question of funding, but there's also the question that um, in San Francisco, both Chem and I have been very involved in a lot of movements here. So we have 
a, ne a network, right? right. But um, but I think it would be really great to bring it to other parts of the world because, um, you know, not just to like sort of transpose it right. in different places with the same people, but like invite local farmers and so on. And yeah, I think that would be that would be excellent. And ideally, I mean, what we did um the three years also is that even though we had very very limited funding we always created a small scholarship fund so that people who didn't have maybe resources for you know travel i mean we had free meals and all that during the event but we also had a little scholarship fund so that people could come and attend but um those were local people right so we would have someone who lived not so far away but still needed some help with like you know transportation um i think it would be great to not only take the people's harvest farm to different parts of the world but also to kind of expand on the scholarship fund where it's not only semi-local people who can attend, but really encourage an exchange of ideas where people, you know, from another country can also get a scholarship to come and meet farmers. Maybe they're, you know, trying to start a farm where they live and so on. Yeah, I think it would be great. There, yeah, it's really, it's a whole, it's like the whole organizational idea in itself, the People's Harvest Forum and, and, and so many of the things you talk about and thinking of uh, youth growing up who might listen to you and be like, this is really interesting. I want to work with these issues for the rest of my life. And um, so many ideas. And uh, there's so much more I want to talk with you about. So we'll have to do more podcast talks in the future. <laughs> okay. With pleasure. I look forward to continue dialogue with you and have a wonderful weekend. And thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. We'll be in touch for more. <laughs>